Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. We are one year old today. So everybody, big cheer. Wish yourselves a happy one year old birthday. Yes. So, what have we got lined up for today, for this special occasion? Well, if you have a look on your little iPod or on the website or hopefully anywhere else, you will see the fantastic art cover by Skeet to celebrate this first year. We also have the editorial by my good self. We've got some poetry by Samantha Henderson. Flash Fiction comes to you by Joe Lansdale. Fact article by our good friend Mr. JJ Campanella. We have a little audio article as well by Skeet on how he got to round to doing the art for the show. Main fiction is none other than Michael Moorcock. Science fiction grandmaster has kindly given the Starship Sova an Elric story, Poirier in Ivory. So I hope there is enough there for this one-year-old sibling of Starship Sofa oral delights to whet your appetite. Do remember, it is all free. You can subscribe to Starship Sofa at the website or in iTunes. Just go there and look up either in science fiction, Starship Sofa, anything. You'll find it. So, on to the editorial. Oral Delights is one year old. And like I said before at the beginning... To celebrate this, two things. We have the very start of the monthly science fiction art cover designed by Skeet. And if you have a look this week or this month, you will see the portrait in ivory. And listen on further on to the show, like I say, Skeet comes on and tells you how he kind of came to that idea and came to that kind of store, that image. So I'm very proud of it. And also, because we're one year old, the very first story we ran on Oral Delights, or what was to become Oral Delights, was Michael Moorcock's London Bone. And I just thought it would be a nice way to kind of round off the year, is to bring in Michael Moorcock, you know, if, you know, if he was kind enough to offer a story, and the art cover, and everything's kind of come together really nicely, and I'm quite pleased, I'm very pleased to be quite honest, we've got the artwork and this story to go hand in hand. And look out... Once a month again, Skeet's promised to, there you go, Skeet, Skeet's promised to do some artwork for the show. Next week, or sorry, next month will be China Merville's Christmas story. So do look out for that. And also, guess what it is? It's actually Oral Delight's birthday. It's also Amy H. Sturgis's birthday as well. Amy, 26th of November. Happy birthday. Now, with the kind of this beginning of the new art, 
series on Starship Sova. And this is probably might be just like a one-off occasion. We'll see how it goes. But what I intend to do is get five of these, the front cover of you know this kind of image that Skeet's created, get them printed up and get myself, Skeet, and hopefully Michael Moorcock to sign them. And they will be in the shop priced at $50. There you go. So I've only got five. And if you have a look in the shop, fingers crossed they'll be in there by the time this goes out or very soon after. Drop us an email if you're interested in anything like that. But I just think the market's special occasion, that would be a great idea, especially getting like this story and this artwork signed by, you know, the kind of three sorting this out, if you like. So that's something to look forward to. Now, there's two things I wanted to mention also on the editorial. First off, I've heard that Escape Pod has went into hibernation. And I think it's just for, hopefully, it's just for a few weeks. I've listened to Escape Pod's meta show and Steve Ely is crammed down busy. And he says it's like each week it's it's getting so close to the edge that he's decided to, and it's the first time ever that he's done this, is take some time off just to kind of restock and get his thoughts together and get his kind of self pumped back up. So, fingers crossed, the skate pod will come back as soon as possible. I think he's aiming for, Stevie, he's aiming for beginning of December. So, let's just all wish Steve success in getting this skate pod back up and running. It is a fantastic show. Now, also, I heard through, just through you know, the community, Tobias Bakel was rushed in the hospital a few days ago. If most people know Tobias Bakel, science fiction writer, he's actually involved with the Audible Metatropolis stories. And he's actually kindly donated two stories to us as well, which are kind of sitting there waiting to go. He was rushed in the hospital with either what the thought might be like a little stroke or a heart attack or something, you know, that was kind of, I'm saying little, pretty serious. And if what was really good was he blogged about everything, you know, on his site. So it's just really what I wanted to do was just kind of wish everything, you know, Toby just to get well quickly soon. I know he's back home. And I think now they're thinking paraconitis, paraconitis, something to do with the heart anyways. But I don't think it's, or hopefully it's not as serious what the first thought, you know what I mean? But like you say, the lads went through a probably a scary few weeks you know there's a photograph of them all kind of monitored up there and everything like that so toby our thoughts starship so far as listeners the community sends our best wishes to you and actually you know this is quite strange isn't it a year ago and i think well it's a year on the first of december when i don't know if many people know now but like last year first of december didn't i fall at work or pass out at work fractured my skull in two places and I had a, like a slight bleed on the brain so yes that was a year ago and I got and honestly thank you for that as well I got so many emails you know like well wishes and everything like that it's just an amazing what I can see this whole internet kind of community you know you kind of do hear about these things now and it's like you say would our thoughts are with Toby to kind of get himself pulled back together again but that's quite a, a you know, one-year-old little birthday I'm celebrating as well. I knocked myself out. So, yes. Now, I'm talking about, remember a couple of weeks ago, I was asking four people to step forward there and claim a job on the Starship Sova. It looks like movie reviews might be taken care of. I think everything is going right in that direction. Listen out for more on that. 
But if you are into the graphic novels and you know your onions about graphic novels, Starship Sova is still looking for someone to come on once a month and review that. So do drop me an email if you're interested. And don't forget narrators. If you're out there, you want to have a little bash at this narrating, like you say, how Starship Sova and how Oral Delights just works is because we're all just kind of help out. Do you know what I mean? There's so many, this gathering. And I think that's why Starship Sova is just going from strength to strength. You know what I mean? It's not just me. I mean, I kind of stitch everything together. You know what I mean? I'm really the figurehead, <laughs> token gesture, the guy you send out first, you know, the one who will fall on his sword if things do go wrong. But... It's all of it, do you know what I mean? And it's like everyone's love of science fiction is just like kind of coming together on Starship Sova, this community, and making it what it is. And if you want to get involved with that, honestly, it's such an exciting time at the minute. Like I say, things are just going great guns with Starship Sova. But I want to give you like a little example of why Starship Sova, you know, is like a community thing. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, there was like the little competition for... The, the, the paperback books. Actually, no one's actually... Oh, yes, there has. Someone has claimed the paperback or one paperback book. But I got a, an email off Steve Bickle, one of our good listeners. Steve, hello, sir. Steve said, <laughs> you know, giving away the kind of the Charles Stross one, the, the clan corporate, the third one in that kind of series might be a little bit difficult for someone to read. So hasn't Steve stepped forward and says, I've got the first two paperbacks. Why don't you give them away as well? You know, like, so you got like one, two, three, and then it all gets together. So, you know what I mean? That's the kind of, the thing with the community. Steve was thinking, you know, it's probably best if you read a lot of them, but I've got them. You can have them as the competition. So for the Charles Stross competition, we have now one, two, and three. If you want to get them books, Get Starship Sofa with this cover now, which would be a nice one, onto someone else's blog, and you get it. First one to email me, you get them books. I'm going to read the last of Steve's email, which I think was really good. Thanks for the Starship Sofa. Keep up the good work. I get the impression that it's becoming a significant part of SF-related media now, often mentioned in the same breath as Escape Pod, even though it would be difficult to imagine two more diverse editorial approaches. I think that's fantastic. And on that note, we will get straight into a little bit of Pori. Cabazon by Samantha Henderson. He stopped at Hadley's to get her dates because she liked the med jewels, although tray after tray piled crystallized in the refrigerator and made it to the aisle before he remembered drove on the service street past the tribal-owned Denny's, past the casino sprouting like a strange neon flower, to Cabazon, where the world cracks open, and concrete dinosaurs guard the alluvial plain, while the bunch-backed clouds, thick with rain and apocalyptic promise, brim over the San Gorgonio, trapping the light of a dying sun. He stopped at Hadley's to get her licorice, before he remembered that she was gone, chopped into red cubes too sweet to chew, but sucked until your mouth is raw. The brontosaurus was pink in the dusk, and now he saw its eyes glowed yellow with discontent, while the T-Rexes were ruby with a jolly predatory look. He stopped at Hadley's to get her pistachios, 
shells opened begging like the beaks of baby birds. Before he remembered that she was gone, forever, she'd crack them in her mouth. The alien was leaning against the northeast leg. He walked by without acknowledgement, nowhere else to go, and climbed inside the tail to the tiny store where they sold plastic dinosaurs, fossilized dinosaur dung, and postcards. It smelled as he remembered of old, cold concrete, and a sign reminded him that it was, in actuality, an apatosaurus. The heads, rough-sculpted in the bumpy walls of early man, still looked down like grisly trophies, looking, as always, faintly reproachful. The Tyrannosaurus's name is Mr. Rex, he read on a fly-specked card, but he'd always called him Bob in bedtime stories, Bob and his improbably apatosaurus mother, who lived in a little house behind the bushes, behind the back garden, behind her bedroom. Ricketts, said the concrete Neanderthal, lack of sun, hence vitamin D, due to climactic conditions resulting from the deluge. That is all. No bowed legs, no brow ridges. Deny it as you will, brother. Seeding, said Peking Man. Extraterrestrial seeding. Outside, the alien shifts his weight and smiles. Angels brought us in spaceships and taught us masonry and geometry. Demons live in the hollow earth. Lucy's big ape eyes brimmed, and he leaned close to hear her whisper, I know what it's like, Mr. Man. I have lost one, too. And he remembered, PBS blaring in the background, the phrase, The female's footprints, deeply indented on one side, indicated she carried a burden on her hip. Perhaps a small child. The alien was leaning against the southeast leg. Of course she's not dead, he said, under an avuncular fedora. Aliens always wear fedoras like Bogart. We took her, for purposes beyond your mortal ken. We always do. No one dies. Not here, not your daughter, not your mother, not your wife. We will return her one day when she has served her purpose. Even now, as the sun explodes, rest assured we will scoop you up. Your Anasazi roommate will tell you wonderful stories. The Apatosaurus was watching them with disappointed yellow eyes. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? it said. Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Wouldn't dream of it, he said. You've been practicing that for a while, haven't you? said the alien. But the dinosaur was sulking. He drove east toward the false waterfalls of the city of the plain. Behind him rain, before him fire. Dates, licorice, and pistachio on the passenger seat to seed the new, clean-burned land. There you go, Doma Getz. Copyright is Samantha Henderson. Samantha, thank you so much. And Julie Davis, what a fine narration, my young lady. Thank you so much.
Flash fiction today comes from Joe R. Lansdale. I'll give you a little heads up for Joe R. Lansdale. Born October the 28th, 1951, Gladewater, Texas. An American author and martial arts expert. So you know what you're thinking about copyright? Don't go messing this time. <laughs> He'll come getting you. He's written novels and stories in many genres, including Western, horror, science fiction, mystery, and suspense. He's also written for comics as well as Batman the Animated Series. He is perhaps best known for his Hap and Leonard series of novels, which feature two friends, Hap Collins and Leonard Pine. Frequent features of Lansdale writing are usually deeply ironic, strange or absurd situations or characters, such as Elvis and GFK battling a soul-sucking ancient Egyptian mummy in a nursing home. And that, that, that's from the plot of his Bram Stoker Award-nominated novella, Bubba Hotep. And actually, it was made into a movie as well, that. He is the winner of the British Fantasy Award, the American Horror Award, and the Edgar Award, and the six times Bram Stoker Award. The World Horror Convention recently made him recipient of the 2007 Grand Master Award for contributions to the field of horror fiction. Narration today comes from our good friend, Mr. Larry Santuru. As everyone knows, or hopefully knows by now, Larry had a few short stories on the Starship Sova. Some great stories there, and he also put together the Gene Wolf, The Tree Is My Hat, for audio dramatisation, which has been played on Starship Sofa. Larry has a new book out at the moment, just north of nowhere. Please do pop over to Larry's site, say hello to him, and check out his book. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... Godzilla's 12-Step Program by Joe R. Lansdale Read by Lawrence Santoro 1. Honest Work Godzilla, on his way to work at the foundry, sees a large building that seems to be mostly made of shiny copper and dark, reflecting solar glass. He sees his image in the glass and thinks of the old days wonders what it would be like to stomp on the building, to blow flames at it, kiss the windows black with his burning breath, then dance rapturously in the smoke and debris. One day at a time, he tells himself, one day at a time. Godzilla makes himself look at the building hard. He passes it by. He goes to the foundry, he puts on his hard hat, he blows his fiery breath into the great vat full of used car parts, turns the car parts to molten metal, the metal runs through pipes and into new molds for new car parts, doors, roofs, etc. Godzilla feels some of the tension drain out. 2. Recreation After work, Godzilla stays away from downtown. He feels tense. To stop blowing flames after work is difficult. He goes over to the Big Monster Recreation Center. Gorjo is there, drunk from oily seawater, as usual. Gorjo talks about the old days. She's like that. Always the old days. They go out back and use their breath on the debris that's deposited there daily for the center's use. Kong's out back, drunk as a monkey. He's playing with Barbie dolls, does that all the time. Finally, he puts the Barbies away in his coat pocket, takes hold of his walker, and wobbles past Godzilla and Gorjo. Gorjo says, since the fall, he ain't been worth shit. 
And what's with him in them little plastic broads, anyway? Don't he know that there's real women in the world? Godzilla thinks Gorjo looks at Kong's departing walker's supported ass a little too wistfully. He's sure he sees wetness in Gorjo's eyes. Godzilla blows some scrap to cinders for recreation, but it doesn't do much for him, as he's been blowing fire all day long and has at best merely taken the edge off his compulsions. This isn't even as satisfying as the foundry. He goes home. 3. Sex and Destruction That night there's a monster movie on television, the usual one, big beasts wrecking havoc on city after city, crushing pedestrians underfoot. Godzilla examines the bottom of his right foot, looks at the scar there from stomping cars flat. He remembers how it was to have people squish between his toes. He thinks about all of that and changes the channel. He watches twenty minutes of Mr. Ed, turns off the TV, masturbates to the images of burning cities and squashed flesh. Later, deep into the night, he awakens in a cold sweat. He goes to the bathroom and quickly carves crude human figures from bars of soap. He mashes the soap between his toes, closes his eyes, and imagines, tries to remember. 4. Beach Trip and the Big Turtle Saturday, Godzilla goes to the beach. A drunk monster that looks like a big turtle flies by and bumps Godzilla. The turtle calls Godzilla a name looking for a fight. Godzilla remembers the turtle is called Gamera. Gamera is always trouble. No one liked Gamera. The turtle was a real asshole. Godzilla grits his teeth and holds back the flames. He turns his back and walks along the beach. He mutters a secret mantra given him by his sponsor. The giant turtle follows after, calling him names. Godzilla packs up his beach stuff and goes home. At his back, he hears the turtle, still cussing, still pushing. It's all he can do not to respond to the big dumb bastard. All he can do. He knows the turtle will be in the news tomorrow. He will have destroyed something, or will have been destroyed himself. Godzilla thinks perhaps he should try and talk to the turtle, get him on the 12-step program. That's what you're supposed to do, help others. Maybe the turtle could find some peace. But then again, you can only help those who help themselves. Godzilla realizes he cannot save all the monsters of the world. They have to make these decisions for themselves. But he makes a mental note to go armed with leaflets about the 12-step program from now on. Later, he calls into his sponsor, tells him he's had a bad day, that he wanted to burn buildings and fight the big turtle. Reptilicus tells him it's okay. He's had days like that. We'll have days like that once again. Once a monster, always a monster, but a recovering monster is where it's at. Take it one day at a time. It's the only way to be happy in the world. You can't burn and kill and chew up humans and their creations without paying the price of guilt and multiple artillery wounds. Godzilla thanks Reptilicus and hangs up. He feels better for a while. But deep down he wonders just how much guilt he really harbors. He thinks maybe it's the artillery and the rocket-firing jets he really hates, not the guilt. 5. Off the Wagon It happens suddenly. He falls off the wagon. Coming back from work, he sees a small doghouse with a sleeping dog sticking halfway out of a doorway. 
There's no one around. The dog looks old. It's on a chain, probably miserable anyway. The water dish is empty. The dog is living a worthless life, chained, bored, no water. Godzilla leaps and comes down in the doghouse and squashes the dog in all directions. He burns what's left of the doghouse with a blast of his breath. He leaps and spins on tiptoe through the wreckage. Black cinders and cooked dogs slip through his toes and remind him of the old days. He gets away fast. No one's seen him. He feels giddy. He can hardly walk. He's so intoxicated. He calls Reptilicus, gets his answering machine. Beep. I'm not in right now. I'm out doing good, but please leave a message and I'll get right back to you. The machine beeps. Godzilla says, help. Six. His sponsor. The doghouse rolls around in his head all the next day. While at work, he thinks of the dog and the way it burned. He thinks of the little house and the way it crumbled. He thinks of the dance he did in the ruins. The day drags on forever. He thinks maybe when work is through, he might find another doghouse, another dog. On the way home, he keeps an eye peeled, but no doghouses or dogs are seen. When he gets home, his answering machine light is blinking. It's a message from Reptilicus. Reptilicus's voice says, Call me. Godzilla does. He says, Reptilicus, forgive me, for I have sinned. 7. Disillusion, disappointed. Reptilicus's talk doesn't help much. Godzilla shreds all the 12-step program leaflets. He wipes his butt on a couple and throws them out the window. He puts the scraps of the others in the sink and sets them on fire with his breath. He burns a coffee table and a chair, and when he's through, feels bad for it. He knows the landlady will expect him to replace them. He turns on the radio and lies in the bed, listening to an oldie station. After a while, he falls asleep to Martha and the Vandellas, singing Heat Wave. 8. Unemployed Godzilla Dreams in it, God comes to him, all scaly and blowing fire. He tells Godzilla he's ashamed of him. He says he should do better. Godzilla awakes, covered in sweat. No one's in the room. Godzilla feels guilty. He has faint memories of having awakened to go out and destroyed part of the city. He really tied one on, but he can't remember anything he did. Maybe he'll read about it in the papers. He notices he smells like charred lumber and melted plastic. There's gushy stuff between his toes, and something tells him it isn't soap. He wants to kill himself. He goes to look for his gun, but he's too drunk to find it. He passes out on the floor. He dreams of the devil this time. He looks just like God, except he has one eyebrow that goes over both eyes. The devil says he's come for Godzilla. Godzilla moans and fights. He dreams and gets up, takes a poke at the devil, blows ineffective fire on him. Godzilla rises late the next morning, hungover. He remembers the dream. He calls into work sick, sleeps off most of the day. That evening he reads about himself in the papers. He really did some damage, smoked a large part of the city. There's a very clear picture of him biting the head off a woman. He gets a call from the plant manager that night. The manager's seen the paper. Tells Godzilla he's fired. 9. Enticement. Next day, some humans show up. They're wearing black suits and white shirts and polished shoes, and they got badges. 
They've got guns, too. One of them says, You're a problem. Our government wants to send you back to Japan. They hate me there, says Godzilla. I burned Tokyo down. You haven't done so good here, either. Lucky that was a colored section of town you burned, or we'd be on your ass. As it is, we got a job proposition for you. What? Godzilla asks. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. Then the men tell him what they have in mind. 10. Choosing Godzilla sleeps badly that night. He gets up and plays the monster mash on his little record player. He dances around the room as if he's enjoying himself, but knows he's not. He goes over to the big monster recreation center. He sees Kong there, on a stool, undressing one of his Barbies, finger in the smooth little slot between her legs. He sees that Kong has drawn a crack there, like a vagina. It appears to have been drawn with a blue ink pen. He's feathered the central line with ink-drawn pubic hair. Godzilla thinks he should have got someone to do the work for him. It doesn't look all that natural. God, he doesn't want to end up like Kong, completely spaced. Then again, maybe if he had some dolls he could melt, maybe that would serve to relax him. No. After the real thing, what was a Barbie? Some kind of form of near beer. That's what the debris out back was. Near beer, the foundry, the 12-step program, all of it. Near beer. 11. Working for the government. Godzilla calls the government assholes. All right, he says. I'll do it. Good, says the government man. We thought you would. Check your mailbox. The map and instructions are there. Godzilla goes out, looks in his box. There's a manila envelope there, insider instructions. They say, burn all the spots you see on the map. You finish those, we'll find others. No penalties, just make sure no one escapes. Any rioting starts, you finish them. To the last man, woman, and child. Godzilla unfolds the map. On it are red marks. Above the red marks are listings. Niggertown, Chink Village, White Trash Enclave, A Clutch of Queers, Mostly Democrats. Godzilla thinks about what he can do now. Unbidden, he can burn without guilt. He can stomp without guilt. Not only that, they'll send him a check. He has been hired by his adopted country to clean out the bad spots as they see him. 12. The Final Step Godzilla stops near the first place on the list, Niggertown. He sees kids playing in the street, dogs, humans looking up at him, wondering what the hell he's doing there. Godzilla suddenly feels something move inside him. He knows he's being used. He turns around. He walks away. He heads toward the government section of town. He starts with the governor's mansion. He goes wild. Artillery is brought out, but it's no use. He's rampaging, like the old days. Reptilicus shows up with a megaphone, tries to talk Godzilla down from the top of the great monument building, but Godzilla doesn't listen. He's burning the top of the building off with his breath, moving down, burning some more, moving down, burning some more, all the way to the ground. Kong shows up. He cheers him on. Kong drops his walker and crawls along the road on his belly, reaches a building and pulls himself up, starts climbing. Bullets spark all around the big ape. Godzilla watches as Kong reaches the summit of the building and clings by one hand and waves the other, which contains a Barbie doll. 
Kong puts the Barbie doll between his teeth. He reaches in his coat and brings out a naked Ken doll. Godzilla can see that Kong has made Ken some kind of penis out of silly putty or something. The penis is as big as Ken's leg. Kong is yelling, Yeah, that's right, that's right, I'm ACDC, you sons of bitches. Jets appear, swoop down on Kong. The big ape catches a load of rocket right in the teeth. Barbie, teeth, and brains decorate the graying sky. Kong falls. Gorjo comes out of the crowd and bends over the ape, takes him in his arms, and cries. Kong's hand slowly opens, revealing Ken, his penis broken off. The flying turtle shows up and starts trying to steal Godzilla's thunder, but Godzilla isn't having it. He tears the top off the building Kong had mounted and beats Gamera with it. Even the cops in the army cheer over this. Godzilla beats and beats the turtle, splattering turtle meat all over the place like an overheated poodle in a microwave. A few quick pedestrians gather up chunks of the turtle meat to take home and cook, because the rumor is, tastes just like chicken. Godzilla takes a triple shot of rockets in the chest, staggers, goes down. Tanks gather round him. Godzilla opens his bloody mouth and laughs. He thinks, if I'd have gotten finished here, then I'd have done the black people too. I'd have gotten the yellow people and the white trash and the homosexuals. I'm an equal opportunity destroyer. To hell with the 12-step program. To hell with humanity. Then Godzilla dies and makes a mess in the street. Military men tiptoe around the mess, hold their noses. Later, Gorjo claims Kong's body and leaves. Reptilicus, being interviewed by television reporters, said, Zilla was almost there, man, almost. If he could have completed the program, he'd have been all right. But the pressures of society were too much for him. You can't blame him for what society made of him. On the way home, Reptilicus thinks about all the excitement, the burning buildings, the gunfire, just like the old days when he and Zilla and Kong and that goonball turtle were young. Reptilicus thinks of Kong's defiance, waving the Ken doll, the Barbie in his teeth. He thinks of Godzilla laughing as he died. Reptilicus finds a lot of old feelings resurfacing. They're hard to fight. He locates a lonesome spot in a dark house and urinates through an open window, then goes home. There you go. Again, don't forget, copyright is Joe R. Lansdale. And don't forget... He is a martial arts expert. You have been warned. And Larry, what an amazing narration. Thank you so much. Don't forget to check out both Joe R. Lansdale's site and Larry Santoro's site. Pop over to the front of Starship Sofa. Links are on the main page. Next, it's time to meet our good friend, that master of science news, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir, what's been happening in the world of science? Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the November 2008 installment of Science News Update. This is Jim Campanella. Tonight's episode and background were inspired by the news of several months ago that we're finally able to reprogram adult cells into becoming stem cells. 
and de-differentiating, as we say in the business. This is the holy grail of anybody interested in body reconstruction or curing genetic diseases. However, that is old news, and in the last month a more recent story has appeared that actually makes that original breakthrough mean something. We can now generate those stem cells to be safe for the recipient. The most obvious question is, why were those regenerated stem cells not safe to begin with? What made them such a potential problem? Well, to answer that, we need to look at a bit of genetic history, as well as some SF history. One of the oldest tropes in science fiction is being able to take traits from one organism and place them into another. The grandfather of all this literature is probably The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. If you remember, Moreau does genetic experiments to alter animals and give them human characteristics. Both the book and movie are chilling, although for very different reasons. The movie is scary based on Marlon Brando's scenery chewing, but now is not the time for that. That story from 1896 predated by about 30 years the first scientific experiment that demonstrated that you really could transfer traits from one organism to another. In 1926, Dr. Frederick Griffith was hired by the British government to make a vaccine to prevent pneumonia infections in the Spanish flu influenza pandemic after World War I. The idea was to use two strains of Streptococcus pneumonia bacteria to help do this. You may remember this flu as being the super flu bug that the media goes on about every year during the flu season and scaring the hell out of old ladies and anybody with kids. Anyway, Griffith had two strains of bacteria that he was working with. First, a smooth strain called the S strain that had a complex sugar coating around it and was virulent and deadly when injected into mice, or humans for that matter. The bacteria caused pneumonia and killed mice in a day or two. The sugar coating was not rock candy. It's a slimy layer called a capsule. It covers the cell surface and allows the bacteria to resist the immune system. The second strain that Griffith used was called the rough strain, or the R strain. And this did not have a capsule and thus did not cause pneumonia when injected into the mice. And that's because the immune system found those cells quickly and easily and kill them. Now, this is the experiment. Try to follow. It's a bit confusing without pictures now. First, Griffith injected the smooth strain of bacteria into mice. And the mice all died, as you would expect. Second, Griffith injected the rough strain into mice. And all these mice survived, again, as you'd expect. Now comes the really confusing part. Third... Griffith took the smooth, nasty strain and boiled it to kill it. Then he injected the nasty, dead strain into mice, and ta-da, they all lived. So, well, this proved if you kill a bacteria, it can infect you. Well, that is common sense, but is it entirely true? The fourth experiment is where most people would say that Griffith kind of went off the rails, he took the dead, nasty, smooth bacteria and injected them into mice with the live, rough bacteria. And all the mice died. This was a bit of a surprise to Griffith, who had expected them to live, but he was even more surprised when he did an autopsy and found live, smooth bacteria in the blood of the dead mice. This made no sense to him, since he did not put smooth, virulent bacteria into the mice. The only way that it could make sense was if somehow the dead bacteria had altered 
the live bacteria and change them into smooth bacteria. And not only did that appear to be the case, but the change seemed to be permanent in the bacteria. Griffith hypothesized that some transforming principle, as he called it, from the heat-killed smooth strain converted the rough strain into the virulent smooth strain. It was later demonstrated in another famous experiment that this so-called transforming principle was actually DNA. This is what happened in that experiment. When the smooth bacteria died, they released their DNA. That DNA was ingested by the rough bacteria, incorporated into the rough bacteria's DNA, used as their own DNA, and then they became smooth bacteria. This process is called transformation. It's the entire basis for genetic engineering and the creation of recombinant organisms of just about any kind. Nowadays, we can transform almost any organism. Bacteria are easy. I do that in my lab every day. Yeast are also pretty easy. Many of the fruits and vegetables that you buy at the grocery store are recombinant and carry genes to protect them as they're growing against pests, disease, frost, flood, heavy metals, heat. We've even been able to add additional nutrient genes into plants that traditionally didn't have them. The best example of that is golden rice, which contains beta-carotene. Beta-carotene is the precursor for vitamin A. That rice is going to save a huge proportion of the underdeveloped world's population from malnutrition-induced blindness. By the way, those of you in the Green Party may rage against genetic engineering of plants and animals, but after 20 years, there is still little evidence that suggests that any GMO is dangerous. I will leave it there before I induce loud yelling and screaming in my audience. To continue, we've even been able to alter animal genetic makeup. One of the common ways of doing this with mice and other higher animals is to take egg cells from those species, treat them directly with the DNA that we want taken up into the genome. Then when the egg is fertilized and the animal grows up, they have a copy of the gene in their DNA, in all the cells of their body, essentially. I'm seriously simplifying this, but that's essentially what's done. Now you're saying, yes, but on the TV show Heroes, they can just inject grown adults with some mysterious substance and they get superpowers. Haven't we gotten that yet? Can we alter the genomes of adult humans? Yeah. Okay. First, Heroes is one of those shows that makes scientists grit their teeth and keep repeating, it's just for entertainment. Calm down before you burst a blood vessel. No. There are no drugs or chemicals known that can alter anyone's genome permanently. Well, at least to any good end. There are lots and lots of chemical mutagens that act randomly and never with any good results. Second, geneticists have been trying for the last 10 years to come up with a good way to transform grown humans. And we've had lots of problems along the way. The first problem that you'll have if you want to transform any grown animal with a new gene is there are lots and lots of cells in an adult. If you inject DNA into somebody's arm, that DNA will stay localized and will be very unlikely to do them much good. If, for example, they're diabetic and need that DNA in their pancreas. The same thing, if they have a neurologic disease, that DNA will stay in their arm and not go to their brain. It's much easier to change the DNA of a human just after fertilization has occurred, or even before fertilization. But there are still moral issues there that many of us have. And anyway, from a practical standpoint, we're talking about getting DNA into a grown human, not into an embryo. Second problem, it never seems very permanent. 
the gene expression seems to consistently go away after a short time. I hate to bring up heroes again, but I really thought that when Suresh injected himself with that compound in Season 2 there, that it would only be temporary, that he would not have a permanent alteration in his genome. I was wrong, obviously. I should know better than to expect reality from a uh, show pretty much created based on comics. But getting back on track here. Third problem. Not all disorders can be cured by giving people single genes. Some disorders are way more complex than that. At any rate, researchers have been trying to come up with solutions to these problems for a while. They decided that the best way to move the target DNA around somebody's body permanently would be to use viruses as carriers. Yes, you heard right, viruses. And not just any viruses, but retroviruses. For those of you who do not know, the most famous retroviruses are herpes and HIV. Uh, good plan? Well, it appeared so at the time. Retroviruses can spread easily and have the ability to place their DNA into your chromosomes. This process of human transformation was called gene therapy. It was a wonderful idea, but, well, it didn't take long for the plan to blow up completely in their faces. In 1999, 18-year-old Jesse Gelsinger came into the spotlight and demonstrated just how far we needed to go. Jesse was participating in a gene therapy trial for ornithine transcarboxylase deficiency, OTCD. By the way, with treatments, this is a non-fatal genetic disease and did not threaten Jesse's welfare. The viral vector that he was given was supposed to give him a good copy of the OTC gene and make him no longer need treatment and feel better. It didn't. He died from multiple organ failures four days after starting the treatment. His death is believed to have been triggered by a severe immune response to the virus that carried the DNA he was given. In January of 2003, the FDA placed a halt on all gene therapy trials using retroviral vectors in blood stem cells. They took that action after they learned that a second child treated in a French gene therapy trial had developed a leukemia-like condition, presumably as a result of the treatment. The child had actually been successfully treated in 2002 for severe combined immunodeficiency disease, but the cancer developed within a year. By April of 2003, the FDA was overseeing any gene therapy trials using retroviral vectors very closely. Because human trials have been very limited by the FDA in the last five years, not a lot of progress has been made in human gene therapy methodology. This takes us full circle back to the original point of this whole article. A year ago, it was reported by two separate research teams. One led by Shinya Yamanaka at Kyoto University in Japan, and one led by James Thompson and Yunying Yu at the University of Wisconsin. Both groups had engineered human skin cells to express four different genes. For reasons unclear to scientists, exposing those cells to those active genes appeared to turn back the developmental clock. Both groups found that the resulting cells exhibited two major properties that define embryonic stem cells. First, they were pluripotent. Pluripotent means that they could develop into any type of cell in the body. And second they could divide apparently indefinitely in their undifferentiated state. Everyone got very excited about this because it was evidence that we could engineer adult cells into embryonic stem cells without any ethical issues. And we could grow huge amounts of these cells. There was only one flaw. 
they were transformed with a retrovirus. A retrovirus that embeds its DNA randomly into the cell's DNA and can eventually induce cancer. That's not a good thing for cells that you want to help people with and you want to actually place in their bodies. In the last two months, scientists at Harvard University have found a way to affect the same reprogramming without using a harmful virus, a method that paves the way for tissue transplants made from a patient's own cells. Dr. Conrad Hochetlinger and his colleagues at Harvard University reported in the September 25th issue of the journal Science that an entirely different type of virus, an adenovirus, can make the DNA transfer into mouse cells without permanently integrating itself into the mouse DNA. The virus just dumps the DNA into the cell where it's able to reprogram the cell with four growth-regulating genes. The DNA is expressed, then degraded along with the virus after the reprogramming. The resulting cells can divide indefinitely as stem cells, but show no trace of the virus, just a temporary infection that disappears within a short time. And that is why they're safe. This is a seriously fantastic breakthrough. Some people have predicted that these new stem cells may become regenerative medicine's magic bullet. If they turn out to be as potent as embryonic stem cells, they could be used to help regrow tissues damaged in conditions from paralysis to Parkinson's disease to diabetes. If they can be grown from a patient's own cells, they could furthermore be transplanted without triggering an immune response and rejection. Imagine regrowing new parts in a tank or by a printing process. New hearts, new kidneys, new livers, new nervous tissues even fresh new ovaries for women past menopause who still want to get pregnant or just want to retain their youthful levels of female hormones. Heck, you can push this into the realm of the very speculative and even predict, with a bit of minor tweaking to the process, that male-to-female transsexuals will even be able to get that uterus and the ovaries they've always desired. If you listen to my news report from last month, you know I was talking about the breakthrough in gene sequencing that's coming in the next couple of years. The combination of gene sequencing and the ability to program an unlimited supply of your own stem cells is going to change medicine forever. It will be a very changed world, ladies and gentlemen. To quote from Miranda in Shakespeare's Tempest, Oh wonder, how many goodly creatures are there here? How beauteous mankind is! Oh brave new world! that hath such people in it. All that I can hope is that we do not live to see those words as the dark, ironic ones that Aldous Huxley envisioned. Only time will tell. Well, thanks for listening. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. P.S. This is an update on my September news report on erasing memories. I told you it was coming two months ago, and things are moving even faster than I predicted. Joe Sien, a neurobiologist at the Medical College of Georgia, created a mouse in which he could activate or inhibit sensitivity to the neural enzyme alpha-cam kinase 2. This is not one of the enzymes I discussed last month, by the way. His research group reports in the October 15, 2008 issue of Current Biology that he can selectively and permanently delete memories from a mouse. Yes, specific memories, not random ones as in the system that I reported last month. Cien says that they have barely stepped foot onto the mountain that is human memory. But 
Things are certainly moving along, even if we haven't moved very far yet. And there you go. Thank you, Jim Carbonella. Another great example of this community. You know, Jim was just a listener at the beginning and then offered his services narrating and now offers his services with his science news. Fascinating article, Jim. Thank you so much, sir. So now we are going to welcome over Skeet to the Starship sofa to plonk himself down next to me on the sofa and talk a little bit about how he got together and how he kind of put together the artwork for this. And hopefully this will be once a month. It'll come round and Skeet will give a little audio interview, or not an interview, an audio article on how he got together and how he thought of the idea and how he kind of worked it all out. And I'll give you Skeet's website, just so you can pop over there and have a look. It is skeetland-art.com. I'm going to spell that. I'm just going to see the whole thing there just so you get it right. But do check out the front of the website because there will be a link on there as well. It is www.skeetland-art.com. There you go. Skeetland-art.com. Do pop over there and check out Skeet's other work. So, Skeet, over to you, sir. Thanks, Tony. I'm glad to have the chance to talk to all of you about this month's first official Starship Sofa magazine cover. It's something Tony and I thought would put the icing on the proverbial cake. As I'm sure you all know, Starship Sofa presents itself as any sci-fi magazine that you might find on the shelf of many bookstores, giving you top content from the hottest sci-fi writers of today to the best in classic science fiction. Also, you may enjoy writer interviews, poetry, and fact articles by some of the most well-informed people in the potosphere. All this together spells out one hell of a show. So what better way to give it a face than to create a cover to represent the feature short story of this episode of Oral Delights? So when I found out who the writer was going to be for this issue, I couldn't believe it. None other than Michael Moorcock. And an Elric story to boot. Unbelievable. This is one of the guys I've been reading since I was 10. The cover art from those books had me hypnotized for years. I still refer to many of the renderings I've collected over my life and treasure the ideas and inspiration this creative writer has given to me. So, as I read A Portrait in Ivory, nothing short of a portal opened in my mind as I was transported to this realm of shadow and intrigue. The woman sculptor, Ryuthi, had me wondering her intent from the beginning to end. I also wondered what Elric might do if her intentions were not true. All this led me to a vision of mystery that I wished to project to the viewer. As per Tony's request, I'd like to share with you briefly how I created this inspired illustration. The head of our dear Elric was to dominate the foreground with it lying on its side, the hair carefully concealing the neck, and not showing whether the head was a sculpture or perhaps a victim to a sharp blade. Of course, I positioned the Lady Thee in the background, silhouetted by the moon, and accompanied by Elric's rune sword strategically stabbing the sand next to her. The desert dunes filling the rest of the image were the perfect setting for the knight's deed. Sounds intense, doesn't it? Good. Now, of course, firstly, I read the story. No difficult task, I might add. In fact, it was a pleasure. And as I read, I filled the space on the side of the page provided with a plethora of notes, highlighting certain strong imagery and making suggestions on how it could be illustrated. 
When I was through, I eliminated the more fanciful ideas and pulled out the best ones that represented the story, giving elements of the characters and setting, but not giving too much away with a specific scene. Instead, I generalized the whole of the story to leave the reader with a sense of mystery. Uh, I wanted the reader to ask themselves, is that a statue or a real head? Did she find our ex-head in the sand, or did she cut it off herself? You won't know until you read the story. As far as the medium, I mixed them up quite a bit. I started with the meat of the image, Elric's head. I began in my drawing book with a pencil sketch. Once I had that done, I carefully inked in the blacks to get a solid line drawing. I then carefully uh, scanned it into my Photoshop program and added some gradients with the airbrush tool, and finally layered a filter to give the sculpture some texture as if it were lying in the sand for a while. After that, the background came. I referenced many images and decided on a blue sand background, which was totally computer generated, adding blue highlights for the sand to make for sharp nighttime highlights. The two moons were to follow, uh, pulling the larger from my catalog of moon photos and adding some reflections from the smaller moon onto the river below. A touch of airbrush clouds over the larger moon for depth, depth and it was almost done. Lastly, I made a silhouette of the lady using the Photoshop pencil tool, and also added the rune sword next to her in the same manner. All in all, it came together quickly. A good story can do wonders to motivate and inspire me. Thank you, Mr. Moorcock. Well, I'm looking forward to bringing a new cover to Starship Sofa every month, so look out for Tony's announcement on what stories from Oracle Lights will be the next month's featured art. And don't forget to check out my website, at www.skeetland-art.com or you can just contact me at skeetland at gmail.com if you're in need of your own website art or illustrations for any occasion. And I'd just like to say, thank you for me. Skeet, thank you so much, sir. It was funny, Skeet sent that over and the first time he sent it over, it's actually, that's the first time he sent it over. I emailed him back. I said, Skeet, you sound too, like, as if you're talking to, like, a, a board of directors. <laughs> and he says he can't help it. That's just the way he goes. It takes a while to get this kind of loose and free, you see, when you're on the mic. So, there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Skeet. It was really appreciated. And don't forget to check out the artwork, what Skeet's talking about. It is on the front of the website and hopefully on other people's blogs as well. If you can get it on other people's blogs, you will get a chance to win some paperback books so now we come into the main fiction of the night mr michael moorcock's short story a portrait in ivory an elric story no doubt and to give you a little background about this story you know i kind of had this idea to you know kind of round off the year of all the lights and wouldn't it be great if we could get another story from michael moorcock and i just sent michael an email you know mike <laughs> mr moorcock to to everybody else you know <laughs> And, you know, straight away, I mean, lovely guy. And actually, he, he said he'd been emailing us a couple of times. And I hadn't been, there must have obviously been going in my spam folder. And he was just talking about, you know, he, he's lost two good friends, Barton J. Bailey and Thomas Stish recently. You know, and I think he just wanted to kind of mention them and mention other things in his life. And I kind of felt good at that. You know, the bloody things were going in the spam folder. But, you know, I kind of said what was happening with the Starship sofa. And it was like, a, you know, it would be nice to kind of do this story 
or get a story off him if he'd be kind enough to send one over, you know, straight away. And when I and got it, I was like, Craigie, this is like Elric. Do you know what I mean? This is just like one of the kind of legends in the science fiction fantasy world, this this character. And I was talking to Grant on Skype, you know, just kind of chatting. And I says, oh, I've, I've getting a story by Mike Mooker. And I said, like, Elric Grant straight away didn't give anybody a chance to get it. Just Tony, can I, let me narrate it, let me narrate it. Oh, please, please, please. You know, <laughs> it was kind of one of them little kind of schoolboys that hold the crotch when they're excited. <laughs> that was Grant. And I just thought that was fine and got this narration back and it's fantastic. And Grant was actually saying the story, Portrait and Ivory. It was actually in a collection called Logoria, Good Words Make Good Stories, and it was edited by John Klim. And the idea of this anthology was each person, or I don't know if each person, each writer was given a word or they had to pick a word, and they had to involve that in the story. Mike Moorcox was insouciant. Now, actually, when I first heard that off Grant, I was thinking, insouciant, what's, what's that mean? So I had to go and look it up. And actually, when I seen the word, I had to go to how to pronounce dot com and it actually it, it says it in audio form how to actually say it as well because i was saying that i was even pronouncing it wrong but if anyone's out there who wants to know what insouciant means it is airy breezy buoyant carefree careless free and easy gay happy-go-lucky headless jaunty light-hearted nonchalant sunny thoughtless unconcerned untroubled unworried and Grant was saying three times he uses that word in this short story. And this anthology is, you know, that's, and it was Grant that pointed out as well, it's like a kind of roll call for Starship Sofa. There's quite a few in there that we've actually had on the show and whose work is sitting there waiting to go on. Hal Dungan, he's in there. Liz Williams, I've got some of her work. Paolo Bajaklubi, he's in there. Jeff Vandermeer. So what I'll do is I'll put a link on to that book and you can go and have a look at it, check it out, see what you think about it. it like I say, it was put together by John Clem and I'm so proud to have this story. And we all know Mr. Grant Stone. He is that severe slush monkey. If you've sent a story to him and you've been rejected, all I can say is my apologies. <laughs> Always harsh. But do send over Flash Fiction. <laughs> We're actually getting like the new website put together, and there's all going to be guidelines up there as well, so just thought I'd add that as well. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to say she is one year old. And on this special occasion, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... A Portrait in Ivory, an Elric story by Michael Moorcock. 1. An Encounter with a Lady Elric, who had slept well and revived himself with fresh-brewed herbs, was an improved humour as he mixed honey and water into his glass of green breakfast wine. Typically, his night had been filled with distressing dreams, but any observer would see only a tall, insouciant silver skin with high cheekbones, slightly sloping eyes and tapering ears, revealing nothing of his inner thoughts. He had found a quiet hostelry, away from the noisy centre of Seredo Mar, the city of tall palms. Here, merchants from all over the young kingdoms gathered to trade their goods in return for the region's most valuable produce. This was not the dates or livestock on which Seredo Mar's original wealth had been founded, 
but the extraordinary creations of artists famed everywhere in the lands bordering the Saing Desert. Their carvings, especially of animals and human portraits, were coveted by kings and princes. It was the reputation of these works of art which brought the crimson-eyed albino out of his way to see them for himself. Even in Malnibane, where barbarian art for the most part was regarded with distaste, the sculptors of Seredomar had been admired. Though Alric had left the scabbarded rune-sword and black armour of his new calling in his chamber, and wore the simple checkered clothing of a regional traveller, his fellow guests tended to keep a certain distance from him. Those who had heard a little of Malnibony's fall had celebrated the bright empire's destruction with great glee, until the implications of that sudden defeat were understood. These days, certainly, Malnibony no longer controlled the world's trade, and could no longer demand ransom from the young kingdoms. But the world was these days in confusion, as upstart nations vied to seize the power for themselves. And meanwhile, Malnibonian mercenaries found employment in the armies of rival countries. Without being certain of his identity, they could tell at once that Alric was one of those misplaced, unhuman warriors, infamous for their cold good manners and edgy pride. Rather than find themselves in a quarrel with him, the customers of the rolling pig kept their distance. The haughty albino, too, seemed indisposed to open a conversation. Instead, he sat at his corner table, staring into his morning wine, brooding on what could not be forgotten. His history was written on handsome features which would have been youthful were it not for his thoughts. He reflected on an unsettled past and an uneasy future. Even had someone dared approach him, however sympathetically, to ask what concerned him, he would have answered lightly and coldly, for, save in his nightmares, he refused to confront most of those concerns. Thus, he did not look up when a woman, wearing the canonical russet hat and dark veil of her caste, approached him through the crowd of busy dealers. Sir? Her voice was a dying melody. Master Malnibonian, could you tolerate my presence at your table? Falling rose petals, sweet and brittle from the sun. Lady, said Alric, in the courteous tone as people reserved for their own high-born kin. I am at my breakfast, but I will gladly order more wine. Thank you, sir. I did not come here to share your hospitality. I came to ask a favour. Behind the veil, her eyes were grey-green. Her skin had the golden bloom of the Na'ane, who had once ruled here, and was said to be a race as ancient as Elric's own. A favour you have every reason to refuse. The albino seemed almost amused, perhaps because, as he looked into her eyes, he detected beauty behind the veil, an unexpected intelligence he had not encountered since he had left Emir's burning ruins behind him. How he had longed to hear the swift wit of his own people, the eloquent argument, the careless insults. All that and more had been denied him for too long. To himself, he had become sluggish, almost as dull as the conniving princelings and self-important merchants to whom he sold his sword. Now, there was something in the music of her speech, something in the lilt of irony, colouring each phrase she uttered that spoke to his own sleeping intellect. You know me too well, lady. Clearly my fate 
is in your hands, for you are able to anticipate my every attitude and response. I have good reason not to grant you a favor, yet you come to ask me one, so either you are prescient, or I am already your servant. I would serve you, sir, she said gently. Her half-hidden lips curved in a narrow smile. She shrugged. And, in so doing, serve myself. I thought my curiosity atrophied, he answered. My imagination, a petrified knot, here you pick at threads to bring it back to life. This loosening is unlikely to be pleasant. Should I fear you? He lifted a dented pewter cup to his lips and tasted the remains of his wine. You are a witch, perhaps. Do you seek to revive the dead? I am not sure. I am not sure either, she told him. Will you trust me enough to come with me to my house? I regret, madam. I am only lately bereaved. I am no sensation-seeker, sir, but an honest woman with an honest ambition. I do not tempt you with the pleasures of the flesh, but of the soul, something which might engage you for a while, even ease your mind a little. I can more readily convince you of this if you come to my house. I live there alone save for servants. You may bring your sword, if you wish. Indeed, if you have followers, bring them also. Thus I offer you every advantage. The albino rose slowly from his bench and placed the empty goblet carefully on the well-worn wood. His own smile reflected hers. He bowed. Lead on, madam. And he followed her through a crowd which parted like corn before the reaper, and he left a momentary silence behind him. Two. The Material She had brought him to the depth of the city's oldest quarter, where artists of every skill, she told him, were licensed to work unhindered by landlord or, save in the gravest cases, the law. This ancient sanctuary was created by time-honoured tradition in the granting of certain guarantees by the clerics whose great university had once been the centre of the settlement. These guarantees had been strengthened during the reign of the great king Aloft, an accomplished player of the nine-stringed Mumalan, who loved all the arts and struggled with a desire to throw off the burdens of his office and become a musician. King Aloft's decrees had been law for the past millennium, and his successors had never dared challenge them. Thus, this quarter harbours not only artists of great talent, she told him, but many who have only the minimum of talent, enough to allow them to live according to our ancient freedoms. Sadly, sir, there is as much forgery practised here of every kind as there is originality. Yours is not the only such quarter. He spoke absently, his eyes inspecting the colourful paintings, sculptures and manuscripts displayed on every side. They were of varied quality, but only a few showed genuine inspiration and beauty. Yet the accomplishment was generally higher than Elric had usually observed in the young kingdoms. Even in Melnibone we had these districts. Two of my cousins, for instance, were calligraphers, another composed for the flute. I have heard of Melnibonean arts, she said, but we are too distant from your island home to have seen many examples. There are stories, of course, she smiled, 
Some of them are decidedly sinister. Oh, they are doubtless true. We had no trouble if audiences, for instance, died for an artist's work. Many great composers would experiment, for instance, with the human voice. His eyes again clouded, remembering not a crime, but his lost passion. It seemed she misinterpreted him. I feel for you, sir. I am not one of those who celebrated the fall of the dreaming city. You could not know its influence so far away, he murmured, picking up a remarkable little pot and studying its design. But those who were our neighbors were glad to see us humiliated. I do not blame them. Our time was over. His expression was again one of cultivated insouciance. She turned her own gaze towards a house which leaned like an amiable drunkard on the buttressed walls of two neighbors, giving the impression that if it fell, then all would fall together. The house was of wood and sandy brick, and many floors, each at an angle to the rest, covered by a waved roof. This is the residence, she told him, where my forefathers and myself have lived and worked. It is the house of the Thi, and I am Rai U Thi last of my line. It is my ambition to leave a single great work of art behind, carved in a material which has been in our possession for centuries, yet until now always considered too valuable to use. It is a rare material, at least to us, and possessed of a number of qualities, some of which our ancestors only hinted at. My curiosity grows, said Elric though now he found himself wishing that he had accepted her offer and brought his sword. What is this material? It is a kind of ivory, she said, leading him into the ramshackle house, which, for all its age and decrepitude, had clearly once been rich. Even the wall hangings, now in rags, revealed traces of their former quality. There were paintings from floor to ceiling, which, Elric knew, would have commanded magnificent prices at any market. The furniture was carved by genuine artists and showed the passing of a hundred fashions, from the plain, somewhat austere style of the city's secular period to the ornate enrichments of her pagan age. Some were inset with jewels, as were the many mirrors framed with exquisite and elaborate ornament. Elric was surprised, given what she had told him of the quarter, that the house of the E had never been robbed. Apparently reading his thoughts, she said, this place has been afforded certain protections down the years. She led him into a tall studio, lit by a single, unpapered window, through which a great deal of light entered, illuminating the scrolls and boxed books lining the walls. Crowded on tables and shelves stood sculptures and every conceivable material. They were in bone and granite, and hardwood and limestone. They were in clay and bronze and iron and sea-green basalt, bright glinting whites, deep swirling blacks, colors of every possible shade from darkest blue to the lightest pinks and yellows. There was gold, silver, and delicate porphyry. There were heads and torsos and reclining figures, beasts of every kind, some believed extinct. There were representations of the lords and ladies of chaos and of law, every supernatural aristocrat who had ever ruled in heaven, hell, or limbo, elementals, 
animal-bodied men, birds in flight, leaping deer, men and women at rest, historical subjects and group subjects and half-finished subjects, which hinted at something still to be discovered in the stone. They were the work of genius, decided the albino, and his respect for this bold woman grew. Yes. Again she anticipated a question, speaking with firm pride. They are all mine. I love to work. Many of these are taken from life. He thought it impolitic to ask which. But you will note, she added, that I have never had the pleasure of sculpting the head of a Malnibanean. This could be my only opportunity. Ah, he began regretfully, but with great grace she silenced him, drawing him to a table on which sat a tall, shrouded object. She took away the cloth. This is the material we have owned down the generations, but for which we never yet found an appropriate subject. He recognized the material. He reached to run his hand over its warm smoothness. He had seen more than one of these in the old caves of the Fawn, to whom his folk were related. He had seen them in living creatures who even now slept in Malnibane, wearied by their work of destruction. Their old master made an exile with no one to care for them save a few mad old men who knew how to do nothing else. Yes, she whispered. It is what you know it is. It cost my forefathers a great fortune for, as you can imagine, your folk were not readily forthcoming with such things. It was smuggled from Malnibane and traded through many nations before it reached us some two and a half centuries ago. Elric found himself almost singing to the thing as he caressed it. He fought back a mixture of nostalgia and deep sadness. It is dragon ivory, of course. Her hand joined his on the hard, brilliant surface of the great curved tusk. Few fawn had owned such fangs. Only the greatest of the patriarchs, legendary creatures of astonishing ferocity and wisdom, who had come from their old world to this, following their kin, the human-like folk of Malnibane. The fawn, too, had not been native to this world, but had fled another. They, too, had always been alien and cruel, impossibly beautiful, impossibly strange. Elric felt kinship even now for this piece of bone. It was perhaps all that remained of the first generation to settle on this plain. It is a holy thing. His voice was growing cold again. Inexplicable pain forced him to withdraw from her. It is my own kin. Blood for blood. The fawn and the folk of Malnibane are one. It was our power. It was our strength. It was our continuity. This is ancestral bone. Stolen bone. It would be sacrilege. No. Prince Elric, in my hands... It would be a unification, a resolution, a completion. You know why I have brought you here. Yes. His hand fell to his side. He swayed as if faint. He felt a need for the herbs he carried with him. But it is still sacrilege. Not if I am the one to give it life. Her veil was drawn back now and he saw how impossibly young she was, what beauty she had, a beauty mirrored in all the things she had carved and moulded. 
Her desire was, he was sure, an honest one. Two very different emotions warred within him. Part of him felt she was right, that she could unite the two kinsfolk in a single image and bring honor to all his ancestors, a kind of resolution to their mutual history. Part of him feared what she might create. In honoring his past, would she be destroying the future? Then some fundamental part of him made him gather himself up and turn to her. She gasped at what she saw burning in those terrible ruby eyes. Life? Yes, she said. A new life, honoring the old. Will you sit for me? She too was caught up in the mood, for she too was endangering everything she valued, possibly her own soul, to make what might be her very last great work. Will you allow me to create your memorial? Will you help me redeem that destruction whose burden is so heavy upon you? A symbol for everything that was Manlibane. He let go of his caution but felt no responsive glee. The fire dulled in his eyes. His mask returned. I will need you to help me brew certain herbs, madam. They will sustain me while I sit for you. Her step was light as she led him into a room where she had lit a stove and on which water already boiled, but his own face still resembled the stone of her carvings. His gaze was turned inward, his eyes alternately flared and faded like a dying candle. His chest moved with deep, almost dying breaths, as he gave himself up to her art. 3. The Sitting How many hours did he sit, still, and silent in the chair. At one time she remarked on the fact that he scarcely moved. He said that he had developed the habit over several hundred years and, when she voiced surprise, permitted himself a smile. You have not heard of Melnibane's dream couches. They are doubtless destroyed with the rest. It is how we learn so much when young. The couches let us dream for a year, even centuries, while the time passing for those awake was but minutes. I appear to you as a relatively young man, lady, but actually I have lived for centuries. It took me that time to pursue my dream quests, which, in turn, taught me my craft and prepared myself for... And then he stopped speaking, his pale lids falling over his troubled, unlikely eyes. She drew breath as if to ask a further question, then thought better of it. She brewed him cup after cup of invigorating herbs, and she continued to work, her delicate chisels fashioning an extraordinary likeness. She had genius in her hands. Every line of the albino's head was rapidly reproduced, and Alric, almost dreaming again, stared into the middle distance. His thoughts were far away and in the past, where he had left the corpse of his beloved Kimaril, to burn on the pyre he had made of his own ancient home, the great and beautiful Ymir, the dreaming city, the dreamer's city, which many had considered indestructible, had believed to be more conjuring than reality. Created by the Malnibanean sorcerer kings into a delicate reality whose towers so tall they disappeared amongst clouds were actually the result of supernatural will rather than the creation of architects and masons. Yet Elric had proven such theories false when Melnibane burned. Now all knew him for a traitor, 
and none trusted him, even those whose ambition he had served. They said he was twice a traitor, once to his own folk, second to those he had led on the raid which had raised Emir, and upon whom he had turned. But in his own mind he was thrice a traitor, for he had slain his beloved Kimuriel, beautiful sister of cousin Yakun, who had tricked Alric into killing her with that terrible black blade whose energy both sustained and drained him. It was, for Kimuriel, more than Emir that Alric mourned, but he showed none of this to the world, and never spoke of it. Only in his dreams, those terrible, troubled dreams, did he see her again, which is why he almost always slept alone, and presented a carefully cultivated air of insouciance to the world at large. Had he agreed to the sculptress's request, because she reminded him of his cousin? Hour upon tireless hour she worked, with her exquisitely made instruments, until at last she had finished. She sighed, and it seemed her breath was a gentle witch-wind, filling the head with vitality. She turned the portrait for his inspection. It was as if he stared into a mirror. For a moment he thought he saw movement in the bust, as if his own essence had been absorbed by it. Save for the blank eyes, the carving might have been himself. Even the hair had been carved to add to the portrait's lifelike qualities. She looked to him for his approval and received the faintest of smiles. You have made the likeness of a monster, he murmured. I congratulate you. Now history will know the face of the man they call Elric Kinslayer. Ah, she said, you curse yourself too much, my lord. Do you look into the face of one who bears a guilt-weighted conscience? And of course, he did. She had captured exactly that quality of melancholy and self-hatred behind the mask of insouciance which characterized the albino in repose. Whoever looks on this will not say you were careless of your crimes. Her voice was so soft it was almost a whisper now. At this he rose suddenly, putting down his cup. I need no sentimental forgiveness, he said coldly. There is no forgiveness, no understanding of that crime. History will be right to curse me for a coward, a traitor, a killer of women and of his own blood. You have done well, madam, to brew me these herbs, for now I feel strong enough to put all this and your city behind me. She watched him leave, walking a little unsteadily, like a man carrying a heavy burden through the busy night, back to the inn where he had left his sword and armor. She knew that by morning he would be gone, riding out of Seredomar, never to return. Her hands caressed the likeness she had made, the blind staring eyes, the mouth which was set in a grimace of self-mocking carelessness. And she knew he would always wonder, even as he put a thousand leagues between them, if he had not left at least a little of his yearning, desperate soul behind him. And there you go, Starship Sova, Oral Delights number 52 is put to bed, one year old. 
Do join me for another year of exciting stories and exciting things in science fiction. I'd just like to say, honestly, a big, big thank you to everyone who's con- you know contributed over the year years, to be quite honest. I mean, Starship Sova itself has been going since 2006. I think May, June 2006, when they kicked off on the airwaves, so it's been a great time. Do send me some emails, starshipsover at gmail.com. Do pop over the forum, you know, and get involved. Even if you just get involved in kind of online just chatting, there's some great people on there who've got some great knowledge on science fiction and just some great ideas and other influences as well. So pop over to the forums. So I just want to end today by again by saying a big thank you. I really do appreciate everyone who's helped out on this show. Thank you so much. And it's good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that